G'day. Welcome to Lunch Money. We are your online and social media home for special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. And my name's Nick Samios. I am the director and fund manager here at Hermes Capital, and uh, I am your Lunch Money host. So uh, welcome to episode 49. We're very excited to be closing in on our 50th episode. Um, today, we are going to look at commercial property. Um, there's a lot of a lot of talk about interest rates and and property prices and um, what's what's happening with people returning to the offices and etc uh, etc et and so we're going to we're going to have a look at uh, what's going on uh, around the markets uh, around Australia and and also we're going to be looking at a, a, at a banker's perspective to see how the banks uh, are dealing with their distressed properties um, because I think on one hand we've got lots of uh, lots of great news about how the economy's doing and GDP and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, behind the scenes, obviously, there's a lot of vacant property about as well. And that means that there's a little bit of distressed property uh, about the place. So we have got uh, two experts um, to to uh, discuss this with us today, Luke Egan and Matthew Maynell. And we're going to get to them in just a little bit. But firstly, a little bit of housekeeping. I would like to uh, remind you to share, like, subscribe, uh, hit the notification bell. Uh, if you're watching us uh, on YouTube, um, and uh, to share, share, share the goodness of lunch money uh, with others, so that they know uh, that this is something that they should be listening to. Do us a favour and give us uh, give us a rating on uh, on Apple Podcasts if you're listening to us there. We've got uh, we've got a few hundred uh, subscribers uh, via Apple Podcasts and Spotify, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so um, yeah, do us a favour. Now, time for me to uh, to introduce our first guest. And our first guest is Luke Egan uh, of Aster Alliance. Hello, all I guess. G'day. G'day, Luke. How, How are you? Are you? I'm very, yeah, well. very well. Uh, Luke, you're with Aster Alliance. Um, tell us a little bit about what Aster Alliance is and what it is that's been keeping you busy this week. Uh, Aster Alliance is a multidiscipline property firm. We, uh, we engage in um, construction and um, building projects across the country. We're also involved in uh, real estate sales transactions uh, in in, in uh, properties that are in mortgagee and possession scenarios. And we also do a lot of consulting work um, for, for different bodies, uh, whether it be aged care, health, in regards to their property portfolios and the, and the best strategies for them. What's been keeping me busy? Well, uh, this year is definitely fired up. Obviously, we had a very quiet uh, year last year with um, everything that was going on with COVID, but um, construction is back with a bang. Um, most sectors are are coming back to their traditional levels now um, and with the infrastructure boost as well with all that spending that's flowing into the commercial construction sector as well. Uh, the mortgage recovery sec uh, sector, which we'll cover on, that's definitely heading up as well. Um, all the moratorium periods are over and we're starting to see a lot more stock come onto the market in, in some of these larger hotspot areas like uh, the apartment sectors in, as an example, Melbourne, um, Docklands and, uh, and, and South Bank. Now I uh, I had dinner last night with some uh, some people who'd flown up from Melbourne because you're in uh, you're based in Melbourne of course but you do work Australia wide um, and they were telling me uh, about some work that, that, that they 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 liquidators and yep. they've been appointed to uh, a property development that's not complete so it's a, it's 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 a work in progress um, and the uh, the developer presumably has uh, has hit the wall and they've called you in. Uh, to try and work some magic. Just so, what is it exactly? What, what is it that you do in that scenario? 
So in this particular example, it was a developer slash builder who was overseeing about 40 assets and um, he's obviously gone into liquidation. Um, but there appears to be some equity in some of the properties. So this particular liquidator has brought us in to effectively QS, work out what claims have been paid to this point, what claims are still valid, and to give a cost to complete um, the project. Uh, so there's one particular project out in the northern suburbs of Melbourne, which is a, a childcare centre, um, which looks salvageable. Um, so the numbers are starting to stack up for the liquidator now. So we're, we're putting in the processes to, to move our commercial uh, building licence onto the project and to complete that project and, and, and get it ready effectively for sale um, later on in the year. Okay. And that is that sort of typical of the work that you do? Or, or is that just one of the sort of many... It's it's one of the one of the gamuts of, of, of our business. So the business is um, split into three sections. There is a general construction business which would deliver services uh, from a fit out, refurbishment, and a new build perspective across a large variety of sectors. Then there and was that's just consulting. you doing work in your own right, basically. Correct. Yeah. So just yeah. working for B two B for for a private investor, landlord, everything in that respect. So there's no no um, recovery aspect in that. But the other part of the business is working with lenders, insolvency practitioners, um, uh, law firms, where, where there might be property that's in a distressed state, where we will come in and, and consult, advise, in, in some cases, what one we're talking about here, um, complete a development, clean up property, and then execute the sale on behalf of a lender or a practitioner. So you're engaging, uh, you know, real estate agents. And uh, do you have your own QS, or do you engage? You're engaging QS people. Quantity no, so we've got, a, we've got a, a full estimating team um, wow. who who have worked across a number of industries for a long time. So engineers, in-house designers, um, we come with a full package. There are some aspects that we do have to outsource. Uh, we don't have our own surveying team for permits and so forth. But um, anything to do with the design and the costing element, we have in-house from a from a real estate perspective. Um, we've got some some great people who have come out of the bank recoveries um, areas um, who have a good understanding of, of, of collection of, of property and, and, and debt um, and that have also been involved in the sale of, of real estate. Um, so they work in-house, but we appoint all our real estate agents um, across okay. the country. So we act as that's a third-party uh, transaction manager. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, that is uh, very interesting. And I can imagine that, uh, yeah, when you've got a development, you know, someone's suddenly in possession of a development, uh, the bank, you know, whilst it's obviously always a part of the bank processes to be across how much the thing's going to cost to finish if they're doing proper, uh, you know, proper development finance, nonetheless, I suppose the liquidator's on the hook and the liquidator's going to want to know, uh, you know, get, get, get their own opinion, I suppose, so that they cover themselves off. Um, now, listen, we are going to try to see if our other guest is able to join us. We're going to give this a go. G'day, g'day, g'day. Matthew Maynell is uh, Head of Investment Services with Colliers and just having a, a flick through your CV here, um, obviously you've been uh, you've been with Colliers for some time and you've had various roles there, uh, including Asia Markets, uh, Insolvency Property Services. Did you sell the jam factory? I did, as a matter of fact, yes. That's yeah, uh, uh, that was, uh, a few years ago now. I've sold a few nationally. You know, so part of our role is, uh, my role is national, so a number of transactions. You know, big one in Dorcas Street a few years ago as well for 165 mil yeah. uh, in Melbourne. Um, actually working on one at the moment in Lonsdale Street. Uh, that's right. I'm in actually Melbourne today. Right, um, okay. Because you're Sydney-based, but, yeah, but you're in Melbourne. 
And uh, I mean, what is that? What is that? So, head of investment services. What does that mean exactly? So we manage our, our commercial transactions business. So selling buildings from sort of ten million to, to two hundred million dollars in the Sydney CBDs, Melbourne CBD, national markets, and then the metro markets. That also includes our mixed-use development product, our Asia markets business. Um, so all our inbound Asian capital as well as our restructuring side, so the distress side of the business. We do a lot of work with investment banks and working on workout solutions and strategies for, for assets that, that need a solution. Okay, and and so obviously you're in Melbourne uh, on this large project. I mean, what, what is it that's been keeping you busy this week? Uh, this week we've just, uh, we sold a building, to give you an idea, some of the scale uh, in four years three and a half years ago now in sydney and st Leonard's, that was for 295 million dollars we're just launching so they're building 635 residential units wow and they're selling at a rate per square meter around twenty thousand to twenty two thousand dollars a square meter wow st Leonard's on the north shore of sydney but part of that project also has eighteen thousand square meters of commercial uh, which is being built so college we're about to launch the the leasing of that as well as you've got nine thousand meters of retail where part of the vpa the voluntary planning agreements. Um, that's where a library is going to be included in that and retail component as well. So we're just launching that, which is a big project. Uh, we're just selling another one, mixed-use development uh, in Parramatta, which will be probably 140 to $150 million. Is that the one on Marston Street? Uh, no, this one is on Church Street. Right. Church okay. Street. Well, there's a lot going on in Parramatta. I know that. For, that's, there is, that's, yeah. Yeah, my, my old stomping ground there. Okay. Uh, yep. I was saying Parramatta is, is for the Victorians, you know, it's our, it's the Docklands. Um, we're really trying to build Parramatta. If you look at the Greater Sydney Commission, our three-city strategy, um, you know, Parramatta, you know, with 780,000 square metres of commercial space with the Parramatta Square developed by Walker Corp, that'll take that up by another 230,000 square metres, which is the equivalent of Barangaroo. You know, Barangaroo is 265,000 square metres. So very shortly you'll see the um, Parramatta Commercial Core CBD at around a million square metres. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, okay. Well, that's. I mean, it's it's just it's just so confusing what's going on in the property market. I mean, as we'll see as we as we go through these different segments and, and we go through some of the headlines uh, that, that we've seen this week. So hopefully, um, you, yourself and uh, and Luke can help us navigate a bit of that. What we're going to do is we're going to bring Luke back. Um, now, we're just going to start off by talking a little bit about uh, the different sectors. Uh, I mean, let's start with hospitality. Um, what, what are you seeing in hospitality, Luke? I'll start with you. That's probably the slowest sector from a uh, real estate and construction perspective from what we're seeing. Um, obviously, with uh, COVID and everything that's happened, a lot, of the, a lot of the hospitality sector has shut down in some capacity. Uh, some have come back, um, but a lot are struggling. Um, you're not seeing a lot of new sites being constructed unless you're a, a top tier sort of player. Uh, so I'd probably say it would be the weakest, the weakest area in, in real estate at the moment. Right. Okay. Um, and and then and then retail. It's it's definitely firing back up. Um, it's had a strong first quarter. Uh, a lot of the retailers are now um, they've definitely diversified um, in what they're and how they're selling and how they're marketing themselves. Um, a lot of the big brands have um, acquired um, smaller retail businesses um, and they're, they're definitely uh, showing a lot more strength on a month-to-month -month basis. So I'm quite bullish about retail. Um, a lot of our customer base is is retail-focused um, and, and the signs are pointing that it's, um, it's going to be a strong year on the, on the back half 
Okay. Um, uh, any comments, Matthew, on uh, on hospitality or retail? Yeah, I think I agree with Luke. Uh, hospitality um, is obviously there's a large contingent that is based on inbound international um, arrivals, uh, and obviously it's no surprise everyone knows where where that sits. Was I was on a plane this morning, which was half full from Sydney to Melbourne, you know, at the six oh five. So typically that was plane was one hundred percent full. You look at people getting back into the CBDs. Currently, Victorian, close to the Property Council of Australia, is just trending towards 50% occupancy. It's about 45%. Sydney's now just about to get over 50%. And your regional areas, such as, not regional, but your, your smaller cities, uh, such as Brisbane, Perth, and Adelaide, they've been back around about 75 to 80%. So once you start to get that headcount and foot traffic moving through the CBDs, that starts to have a material effect on your hospitality. Uh, but we're still being affected by COVID with the the areas you know, the one person per two square metres. So once that's wound back a little further, I think you'll start to see um, more people in the city and you know attending pubs and standing up and having a drink. That helps the hospitality industry. You had Justin Hems owns about 95 establishments uh, across Sydney campaigning quite vigorously to see that laxed a little further to make sure we can get people back into these venues. So to Luke's point, you know we've had JobKeeper, JobSeeker, Codes of Conduct and moratoriums all really wound back from the end of March. That's where we'll see some businesses that I think will fall over in the retail space because they were being underpinned by effectively government uh, quantity easing, putting cash back into the marketplace. So I think we're in for a period here of you know, the second half of Q2 and the first half of Q3 to find out which businesses really are sustainable. And that sustainability is built on foot traffic from a, a hospitality point of view, as well as retail. Um, Retail, we, you know, all the REITs from the NTA, net tangible asset value, did wound, wind back um, their vows between sort of 25 to 50 basis points. The, the investment fund managers are sort of saying that may have been a bit of a conservative approach. Um, but, you know, we're of the opinion now that because of the level of equity and cash in the economy, uh, we're seeing incredible competition for these assets. So I think a major influencer for that space as well is cost of debt. Uh, which right. you know, obviously you can give us plenty of commentary on, but if you go back to 2009 to 2012, so GFC period, you know, you're looking at about 650 basis points. Today, if you've got an asset which is uh, with a strong leasing covenant, you're, you're getting debt all in at 160 to 180 to 190 basis points, depending on your LBR and asset strategy. So because of that cash arbitrage, we'll continue to see some yields compress. So that's all. Well, that's all retail, Matthew, that you've been talking about there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah? Okay. So moving on to offices, uh, there are some uh, weird solutions that are coming up. Which we're hearing a lot about offices. Uh, you know, people not returning to offices, and now we're getting this idea of turning offices back into clubhouses to lure workers back. What's uh, what's going on in the commercial space? Uh, are people returning to the CBD? They are. Yep. Uh, we are seeing a trend back. We've seen a lot of employers. It's around collaboration uh, and businesses. You know, it's hard to build uh, a strong culture in a business when people are, you know, fractured from a work environment. You know, there's an example. You know, Ernst and Young came out and made a statement that they expect to have their Sydney CBD tower at about 35% occupancy by the end of this year and 75% by next year. Um, you know, so, so, sorry, say that again. Say that again. Could you just repeat that? Thirty-five percent occupancy by yep. the end of twenty twenty-one, and seventy-five percent by the end of twenty twenty-two. So, there's a number of philosophies in the marketplace where you'll hear hub and spoke, 
Hub and yeah. Home. So obviously Hub and Home um, grew from Hub and Spoke during COVID. So instead of being your smaller um, employment hubs closer to infrastructure, transport and residential accommodation, that was became the spoke that we yep. then drifted towards what I refer to now as hub and home. Uh, I'm not a big advocate of that. Uh, I think like everything in a marketplace, there's new ideas and thought bubbles and this seems like a good strategy at the time. But at the yep. end of the day, the only way business can, in my opinion, fundamentally grow and build a culture is have people working together. Um, yeah. And that, that, that breeds, and that, that also then benefits your retail sector, your hospitality sector, by getting people back into the CBDs and getting activity. And you know, there's an example of some of the graduates of the, the big four accounting firms. You know, they're starting as graduates. They've never been into their office and met their colleagues. Their idea right. of meeting their colleagues and building a relationship is via Zoom conference, which right. is not sustainable, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, Luke, what would you what would you add to uh, to that to that office situation? Yeah, I think to, to Matt's point, um, I definitely agree with him that uh, everyone we need everyone back in the office. It's it's it's, it's where where we all need to be. Um, and I think from a property perspective, landlords are, are throwing great contributions back um, to tenants to get them to get them on board. Some of the deals that are being cut at the moment on a on a longer term um, for tenants is just incredible. Including um, cost of fit outs paid for, um, and 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 first first year rent free. Um, I think if that continues to happen across the country, I think we'll see a, a, a gradual increase in in occupancy in commercial real estate. Okay, all right. Well, look, um, I'm going to just throw you both a little bit under the bus here, if you don't mind. I just want to flash up slide two, please, Yashi. ESR snares Blackstone Industrial Property Portfolio for $3.8 billion. Now, if I can just find that article here, I, I was, I, I, is this, uh, are you familiar with this sale, uh, Matthew? Yes. And uh, yeah, go on. Singaporean sovereign funds, QIC, yeah. as well. Right. Now, I mean, I mean, just if I, I'm just going to read a little bit from this article. The price which has set new benchmarks for industrial property across Australia is the largest to be paid in direct property deal in Australia, outstripping a $2.5 billion portfolio of office towers that investors sold six years ago. Now, uh, one of one of the chaps I was talking to yesterday, it doesn't say in this article, so and I haven't had time to research. Oh, here it does. The consideration attributed to the portfolio is expected to provide an initial yield of 4.5%. Uh, with a six to nine year weighted average lease expiry. Now I'm told that 4.5% yield is knocking it out of the park. Is, is that right? Yes, it is. And I think what's also of note of that is about $45 billion worth of underbidders in capital that's a wash in wow. the marketplace at the moment looking for opportunity. So you've wow. got a transaction there at 3.8, but it's also the scale of the groups that were underbidders that have capacity to buy at this level. And you know, if, if you just look at it from a singular point of view, you know, in the Australian economy, um, you know, we've got $3 trillion worth of superannuation. About $860 billion of that is self-made super. And people putting their money in the bank at 75 basis points or 100 basis points for a term deposit, what we're seeing is this weighted capital looking to be invested into real estate. Uh, and that's continuing to put pressure on yields. And what's sustaining that pressure is that very low entry point for cost of debt. Um, so whilst ever that is, whilst, whilst that stays the same, We'll continue to find more and more people investing, and that's where we're starting to see syndicates together of some people putting together their superannuation money and combining to buy an asset for $20 million, $25 million on a yield now of circa 4%, where typically 
from an institutional point of view or a high net worth individual, they would normally look for internal rates of return between the seven and a half to eight and a half percent. Today now we're seeing that sub five percent. With that debt being so low, people are also now look to adjust their investment strategy around cash on cash returns. Um, and so if they're putting a 50% LVR, what's their return on their cash investment and hoping to get further capital growth and their cash investment is the straight out return once you put leverage into that. So right. that's again, another trend we're seeing in the marketplace. So because of that, I think we'll continue to see yields compress further. And that's on the back of, you know, obviously an exploding residential market. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that really is quite fascinating. I mean, what, what you've just said is that for a $3.8 billion portfolio purchase, there was there must have been, what, at least a dozen other bidders, I mean, assuming they weren't all that high, uh, able to cut checks for that sort of money. And again, as you've said, you know, typically people would be looking for, you know, the sevens and eights, you know, they're going to take a risk on commercial property. Uh, on industrial property, um, but they're, they're, they're having to reset their expectations or they're going to miss out is, is really what, what what's going on there. And what, what, what are your thoughts, Luke? Industrial by far is one of the biggest growth markets in the country. I mean, if, if you jump on some of these uh, online portals like Tenderlink, the majority of tenders that are going out at the moment is, is all industrial related. A lot of the property funds that I talk to, they just can't buy enough industrial land um, and that, that's across the whole country. It's it's quite amazing just how aggressive some of these funds are in, in the amount of land that they're purchasing and and the prices they're paying. But like we touched on there, some of the yields that, are, that they're getting, I mean, it just makes it, it stacks up. Yeah, and uh, why industrial? I, I guess you know, commercial being office space. I suppose is it is it because money's just leaving these other markets and and industrial's the best, the next best bet after after re retail and uh, you know after re retail and commercial and residential or. No, it's, or it's been a fundamental shift there, Nick. In, if you look at um, where this industrial is coming from, predominantly it's chain logistics, right, uh, and. So once, if you look at a parcel, three years ago, 5% of every uh, purchase from a retail perspective, 5% of that was done online. Right. What's happened here is we've seen during COVID, a number of people like myself, um, who would not normally be someone who'd learn to shop online, you had to learn to accommodate and move forward. And one of those progressions, we're expecting to see the online shopping component head towards 12 to 13% by the end of this year. So if you look at what that means for something arriving in the country, being imported from overseas, that's got to land into the warehouse yep. and have that then to be distributed. So whilst we've seen an enormous shift in that quantum of online shopping, that has a material impact on the chain logistics and warehousing to get those purchases to the mums and dads or the people who are buying them. So that's one of the main drivers. So people can see there's been an absolute pivot in the way people consume, and that major change is the online shopping. So that means that item needs to be landed in the country and then in a very fast period of time delivered, and that's through the, the IA changing robotics technology. If you walk into an industrial shed, for better use of word, today, they're a technology hub. It's like the data centre of technology when you have a look at uh, the way these items are moved from one part of the factory to the next. It really is robotic movements. Yeah, I mean, is this is it, this is sort of like the Amazonification of the economy? Is it is that what you're really talking about there? Yes. Yeah. And it's, you've yeah. seen 
institutional investors where institutional investors, <clears throat> their strategy sat commercial, retail. And yeah. now we've seen the weighting of them trend now to get more weighting to industrial. And you've seen some of the largest institutions divesting of some of their office assets and re-weighting to industrial. So buying these so they have a more diluted exposure to each individual asset class. But what they're trying to do now is acquire more industrial to have that more evenly weighted. So does that mean like, you know, short that shorting commercial, longing, uh, you know, you short commercial, long, long industrial, basically, is what you're saying. The other thing is not all industrials the same, right? Like not every piece of industrial property is a massive warehouse that you can put robotics in and, and turn it into an Amazon distribution centre. So and what are the what are the difference? Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in a, there is still some industry here in Waterloo where I'm sitting. I mean, it's all turning into apartments at the moment, as, as you know, Matthew, being a Sydney boy. Um, but what I mean, are they different? Is is all in the industrial being lifted? Well, the, the change is land. So if you look yeah. at where you are there in Waterloo, there's about 1.2 million square meters of industrial space being purpose-built alternate use in that yeah. South Sydney marketplace. Yeah. So you look at what's happened to land values and rents. So what you're seeing is you're seeing the smaller factories moving out towards infrastructure. So on the back of the infrastructure spend by the state government in New South Wales and improving roads and transport, large industrial users are chasing land values at $200, $300, $400 a square metre, $500 a square metre. If you mm. looked around Waterloo today, your land value might be between $1,300 to $2,000 a square metre. So they need to find something from a construction point of view, the cost to construct, where they get their retail and their return back for their investors. So that's why we've seen the push further out to the western suburbs and around right. the infrastructure piece because of the affordability land value has changed for alternate use. Um, so due to that change in use, like you mentioned at the Waterloo marketplace, you know, that's now worth $12,000, $13,000 a square metre on GR, $14,000 a square metre for residential. Right. Industrial use is around $6,000 a square metre. So right. that's why that other value, so that's why they've gone out for cheaper land value and that's what's driving those redevelopments and they need more space. Like, it's not uncommon now to hear an industrial factory at 70,000 square metres, 80,000 square metres, 100,000 square metres in the marketplace like Waterloo Mascot. It's more fraction, so it's difficult yeah. to get something of that scale. Right. Okay. Listen, let's. I, I want to quickly get into, just quickly cover off uh, on residential, and then I want to come into the uh, the, the bank uh, the bank debt side of things, and I'll, I'll come to you, um, 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 Luke, because we were talking a bit, a little bit about residential earlier. I've got a headline here: uh, investors offload uh, Melbourne CBD apartments for losses of up to forty percent. Um, and let me just read a little bit from that article. Melbourne apartment owners have offloaded inner city units at losses of up to 40% in recent months as some apartments continue to sit empty a year after Melbourne first went into lockdown to slow the spread of the coronavirus. City-based real estate agents say smaller apartments aimed at university students have suffered some of the biggest resale losses but uh, added that owners of large non-student apartments have also experienced substantial losses. So, Luke, are you, are you you're seeing some of this stuff? Oh, definitely. I mean, for, from my business's perspective, this would be probably one of the biggest hotspots for us um, in the CBD of Melbourne, the areas like Docklands and Southbank. There's been a, a large international uh, flavour of investment in these portfolios, uh, and, and with 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 that drying up and, and tenants leaving um, and, and returning home, it, it seems to be a larger delinquency rate coming on board. Um, it's quite incredible the, the, the numbers that we are seeing on a, on a weekly basis. 
um, from a mortgagee and possession perspective. Um, with with property prices still still um, on the rise in Melbourne, um, for some reason these these apartment this apartment sector just can't seem to sustain um, uh, uh, holding holding the possession of the property. So it's definitely going to uh, it's definitely going to increase over the coming months, um, and I think the vacancy rates will continue to grow. And uh, is it? It's obviously in Melbourne. I mean, what about in other cities? You know, Perth, Sydney, uh, Brisbane. Definitely starting in Sydney in some pockets, but but nowhere to the level of Melbourne, um, Adelaide, um, Brisbane, Perth all seem to be pretty resilient at the moment. Um, but I, I believe it will flow onto those sectors as well. I think Melbourne just seems to be ground zero from apartment perspective. Um, but there's also a lot of development down here as well, um, and I think that is probably also I played a part in um, an overflow of stock in the market. Okay, anything to add to that, Matthew? Yeah, I think if you're an investor and you have the ability to hold, I would. Um, if you look at you know Victoria and New South Wales, Victoria typically has a net population growth of around 115 to 120,000 per annum. Sydney's around about 100 to 105. Of that, typically about 75% of that is migration. So obviously that's come to a uh, a very rapid stall where that will come from. We're expecting to see that obviously change from 2023 onwards. But what we're also seeing is a lack of stock being delivered in the marketplace because people are unable to get pre-sales. So it just comes down to the thematic of supply and demand. And what you will see uh, is an absolute undersupply of stock in years 2024 and 2025 and 2026 where right. these developers are unable to get the pre-sales. People want to buy finished products. So Yes, there has been some drop and softening in pricing in the Melbourne CBD, uh, not so the Sydney CBD. But what you've also seen, if you look at the real rapid rise in Melbourne and in Sydney at the moment for a house. Now, this is an old rule of thumb. If a house was worth 100 cents, a unit should be worth 60 cents in the dollar. Okay. Uh, for that All difference right. so in a, value. That's, a, so that's, that's a, an old real estate uh, rule of thumb there. It is. And what, yeah. and what you've seen, that that divergence, that gap, got much narrower than that because our unit values, because there's a lack of supply, there was a real price right. push. So okay. they couldn't get the, the divergence narrowed. And now we're seeing with the house prices rapidly explode in value, you're starting to see that divergence take place again between the cost of units and the cost right. of houses. So what will happen is, for you know, the great Australian dream for, for a young person coming through, Nick, your kids, my kids, one day to try and buy a property, you know, they're now being educated, what you're going to be buying is a unit because that's your yeah. affordability piece. And yeah. so with the lack of supply, that will start to put pressure on pricing. Um, we're very bullish um, on the residential market in Sydney and in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but th there is an equilibrium happening at the moment and there is some people that you know who bought off the plan three and four years ago, you know, the height of the market in 2017. Um, there's a bit of pain for some of those people. But we do know, you know if you look at COVID, what we've learned globally is Australia is the best destination to be in. Um, oh, and you look at no the amount question. of expats that are trying to get back into the country at the moment, you know, we'll start to see bonds being put back in place for skilled migration, there'll be visas put back in place, and they will all be looking for somewhere to rent and for somewhere to buy. And the skilled yeah. migration will be people looking to buy. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm very bullish on the market. There is an equilibrium, you know, there there is a shakeout happening, but that just is supply and demand. And that yeah. supply will be absorbed and then the demand will take off considerably. Okay, well, that's um, that's very positive, but uh, we 
might just splash a little bit of negative on that now, if you don't mind, uh, just to put another. Yeah, now, 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 Matthew, obviously you've ha you've had a bit of uh, experience in the, on the insolvency side, and Luke, obviously you're you're dealing with distressed property all the time. Let me just put up our last uh, headline, which is from Bloomberg, talking about America. But the twelve point three trillion in stimulus killed the debt default cycle. Almost all fear of bankruptcy has been obliterated from bond markets, even though the global economy is still struggling. It's fair to say that 12.3 trillion stimulus uh, seems to have killed off the debt default cycle. And it goes on to say, uh, the simplest way to see this is quite basic. The lowest rated companies are enjoying the cheapest borrowing costs in history. Uh, yada, yada, yada. So uh, investors, have raced one <laughs> investors have raced one another to lend billions of dollars to cruise companies and airlines, even as they bleed cash. Um, so I, I just wonder, I know, uh, you know, we, we talk, you know, when we talk uh, to, to our friends at insolvency and restructuring, you know, the banks certainly don't seem to be in a hurry to move stuff on. So Luke, what, what are, you, are you seeing any changes in bank behaviour lately? Look, it's, it's the million dollar question, this one. How far is it going to go from a uh, recovery perspective and, and what sort of numbers we're going to see? But look, last year, uh, the with all the moratoriums, there wasn't much enforcement from any of the banks. Um, those, those metrics have now stopped and uh, there are evictions happening. But what we're seeing is a backlog with the Sheriff's Department now, um, which is increasing the volume. Uh, I think as time goes on, more and more and more enforcement occurs. I think we're going to see more and more stock coming onto the onto the onto the property market. How many? I, I don't know, um, but I believe the all the credit that was obviously washed into the system last year has definitely stopped a lot of these uh, borrowers from from having to enter into a, an MIP scenario. Uh, and and I, and I feel that as time goes on. Um, we will see more and more delinquency rates across the major banks. Um, we look at GFC time. Um, it took it took a year, two years, till we saw the full impact from a property perspective. And I feel it'll be the same um, with the current scenario. And Matthew, you already mentioned before that, uh, for example, when we were talking about this Blackstone uh, property deal, you know, there was just bags and bags of cash all over the place. Um, so even if the first buyer hadn't have been there, there would have been someone else there with a, a few shekels less. Um, and you know, I mean, but are you are you sort of are any of the banks talking to you about distress or? I mean, from where we said it, they they just seem to be sitting on their hands and you know returns are so low it doesn't really matter. There's no there's no sense of urgency. Are you seeing what are you seeing in the bankers that you speak with? Yeah, I look, I look from our restructuring business. If you look at where our appointments are coming from. Uh, there's only been one that's come from one of the major banks. It's one, you know, something over twenty million dollars, um, you know, on the back of banking royal commissions. Uh, but also, you know, they, there has been a lot of good learnings from the GFC, and the credit policies are much tighter uh, on the major banks. What we've seen from our appointments point of view, it's coming from second and third tier lenders. So right. your investment banks, your offshore groups, uh, your groups that may not have done as much diligence uh, on some of these funding structures and where they sat in the funding stack. There is a number of groups that have been second mortgages and third mortgages uh, that are trying to take mezzanine, mez positions to get a better return on their, their debt. Um, we are seeing some appointments coming from those groups, most definitely. Um, but I've, I've been saying for quite some time, I don't think the real stress is going to come to our marketplace, similar to what Luke just alluded to before, until you know, Q3, Q4 at the earliest of this year. Uh, once we really 
able to identify you know, if it's a commercial asset, what your true net operating income is. Because whilst groups have been, your lessees have been supported by JobKeeper, JobSeeker, that's been able to contribute to paying the rents. And there's a, almost a, a forensic audit taking place at the moment on your lessees to make sure they have the ability to pay the rents. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess uh, and, uh, you know, as long as interest rates remain where they are, uh, then that's going to be fine. If interest rates increase, you know, then it's going to, uh, you know, it's, it's 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 going to change things. But you know, something that you just said there, Matthew, is it's interesting. I I actually wonder whether or not the banks are going to have any problems at all. As I think about it, I mean, because there are again, because of all this weight of money, there are so many new mortgage funds popping up every day. I mean, I was talking to a valuer yesterday, and I've spoken to solicitors. Um, they're not getting bank work; they're getting work from uh, second and third tier lenders. Uh, and there seems, uh, I was talking to a Vale yesterday, he said he's, a, he's accrediting a, a new lender every day almost. Um, and so I guess anything that does uh, get a whiff of distress, um, the banks won't be, uh, the, the banks will just only have to sort of look in the, look, 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 you know, look at the client the right way and they'll probably refinance and, and probably most of the work will be coming from these other funds. Is that is that what you think, Luke? Definitely. That's definitely what's happening at the moment. Um, yeah. Second, third mortgagees, they're the ones who are enforcing. Uh, and it's probably worth noting as well, some of the major financial institutions come out late last year and said that they won't enforce on any loans until September, October this year. Uh, so they definitely can carry it, and um, that's, what, that's what we're seeing at the moment. Okay. All right. Well, look, we, we're going to wrap it up. So I'm just going to give you uh, just uh, the opportunity to just give us some closing thoughts. Um, I'll start with you, Luke, and then I'll come to you, Matthew. Look, uh, from a, my perspective, um, from a building and a real estate perspective, we are, we are very bullish um, in, in, in the approvals and, and permits that are being um, registered around the country at the moment. Um, from, from that perspective, working with landlords, um, private investors, everything is, uh, everything is going gangbusters. From a recovery perspective, as I said before, the million dollar question is how far will it go? Um, we're definitely seeing uh, there is more enforcement and traction, um, but um, time will tell on that and um, I think over the next few months we'll we'll start to see how big the hole is. Okay. All right. And Matthew? Uh, if you're sitting at home watching this, get back to the office. Uh, don't work <laughs> from home anymore. Um, you know, the economy drives on people getting back and having really strong CBDs. If you don't have a strong CBD, you don't have a strong metropolitan market. If you don't have a strong metropolitan market, you don't have a strong residential market. Um, that's very evident. So we need everyone to, to do their bit uh, to get back to work. We are... If you look at where we sit right now with what debt costs are, it's, you know, it's come out by the RBA very clearly stating we're going to be in a low debt environment for the next two to three years. Uh, so that gives people confidence to go out and buy. Um, what that does is drive employment uh, if you have confidence. So I think we'll see that in the marketplace. There is definitely some headwinds in some sectors. There is no doubt about that. Uh, and we'll see a little bit of stress. But on the back of that, I still think you overlay 2023 onwards when hopefully no more COVID major issues we'll start to see um, more inbound skilled migration uh, and that will put population growth and that puts pressure again on employment rent so I think we're in, in what's in front of us is a very very strong 18 months to 24 months in the property industry. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's you know that's that's very interesting, and I suppose if you had to pick uh, if you had to pick winners globally, uh, you know, Australia would certainly be uh, be on your very short list. There's no two ways about it. I'm not sure. I've said before. I'm not sure where else you'd rather be in the world. All right. Well, look, uh, we will wrap it up there. 
So, Luke and Matthew, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been uh, very enlightening. Pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure. Cheers. Thanks, Luke. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah.